on another episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast. My name is Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, bringing you a VIP episode of Hero Paranormal from the Silver State, the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51. We are bringing you the, well, sometimes my mind is constantly blown. And that's the fun and the love and the passion that it's about. This particular guest today uh, really characterizes that passion in a major way for me because he is not only altruistic in his mission, but he is very forward-thinking and open-minded and willing to have a conversation with the people that matter. And he's, uh, I'm talking about Lou Elizondo. Uh, if you've watched and identified, I believe it's season two, episode three. I could be wrong on that. Don't, but I believe that's the one it's Jeremy McGowan and he's a local Las Vegan here, a fellow local, uh, resident of Las Vegas. So kudos to that. Another, desert rat out here having a good time in the sun. And not only is he having a good time in the sun, he is doing some amazing things networking wise and technology wise, working with Skyhub technology. If you haven't checked that out, um, gosh, you've been, I know I, I felt like I was living under a rock somewhere when I realized how neat Skyhub is. It came on quick. Everybody's getting involved. I'm on it. Get in it. I, appreciate everybody who's involved. Jeremy is a front runner here with uh, a GoFundMe, which we will shoot links to for all the listeners and also uh, note here in the podcast. So have a pen and paper ready. What he is doing is attaching one of these Skyhub units, high, high technology scanning units. Uh, it's amazing what they do onto his Land Rover, and I'm kind of a Land Rover nerd, nut, whatever you want to call it. I have, uh, you know, two of the pedigree in my garage and they are, well, he's got my, possibly my all-time favorite or one of my all-time favorites, which is a Land Rover Discovery with the Ace package, which is a pretty amazing package that they had on the Discovery version. Now, a pretty amazing four by four in its own capacity. But what he's turning it into is basically (laughs) something much more than that. So keep keeping, keep, keep listening. And Jeremy's going to go into that. There's so much more to this podcast than I think we can cram into the time allotted. If you haven't watched Unidentified, I highly recommend it. It's on the history channel and uh, you will see to the Stars Academy, basically followed by, I believe, a television crew. Jeremy can explicitly explain that a little bit better. I'm not sure how that all works, but it is much like other shows with the History Channel that are as real as they can get. And uh, that's kind of how Jeremy is, as real as you can get. One of the coolest guys out there. Great projects going on. Everybody get in there, get it to be a part of it. And uh, even if that's just pitching him a buck or two towards his GoFundMe and uh, keeping track of what he's doing, because it's really, really cool. And we're going to get into possibly the most amazing part of the whole scenario, which is his own experiences. And I'm talking about experiences in the Middle East with UFOs and a lot of top secret stuff. I'm not going to get into. We will let 
Mr. McGowan talk about that in uh, the way that he can, because I know he has to carefully watch his words. And as is commonly the case with people who were on missions like this. So it's a doozy. If you haven't been to heroparanormal.com, please check it out. Uh, it's a place where you can access, quickly access the archives and listen to them in a more quickly downloadable format if you're jumping on a flight, jumping in a car, wherever you are. Be a superstar and listen to us. We appreciate it. And I say us because it's about us, not just me. It's about the listeners too, because you guys actually give me a lot of ideas that I wouldn't come up with my own. So I appreciate that. Without further ado, Jeremy McGowan, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Well, hey. Cool. We're finally talking. This is amazing. And I'm I'm just fascinated by, gosh, so much going on. Uh, not just the stuff with unidentified, but, you know, that's fascinating in and of itself. But uh, the Sky Hub things, there's, there's so many directions we can go to. Uh, Mr. McGowan, it's, let me let me just start by having you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you found yourself in this position. It's not something you ran after or looked after, yeah. and and just kind of how how this all came about. Yeah, man, and and you're right. There are so many facets to this. It's it's pretty. I'm still wrapping my head around everything. I I don't know what direction I'm going to go in. I I sure as hell know where I came from. Um, and I do want to give a shout out to Sean Cahill, who has uh, has developed. Well, he and I have developed a very very strong friendship over the past several months, and I think that the directionality that I'm heading in is being severely influenced uh, by Sean. But as a little bit of a background, um, and I've, I've told the story multiple times so i don't know if you want to go into the story itself or just kind of the ancillary stuff before and and, and after and during but uh, back in 1995 when i was in the air force i was deployed to jordan and uh, i had a sighting uh, when i was on duty in jordan and i kind of had put it out of my head for well i didn't really put it out of my head i just didn't do anything with it for about 24 25 years and then through a series of very strange coincidences and events, I ended up contacting TTSA uh, based on some advice from some guys on Reddit because I had gone on Reddit to see if the detectives, quote-unquote, on Reddit could help me track down some other people that were on that deployment with me because I, I wanted my personal memory validated. And uh, the guys on Reddit had told me about the TV show and to uh, to reach out to TTSA and see if they could do anything. And that's exactly what I did, and I ended up on the show. I ended up on uh, Season 2, Episode 3, telling my story uh, about what I had seen in Jordan. But it was it was never with intention. I'd, I'd never wanted to go down that rabbit hole. I never wanted that 15 minutes. Um, I just wanted personal validation and stuff. And... And ever since then, it's just been, man, it's been a wild ride since that show. And um, you you got some personal validation by, just by coincidence, because uh, they, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be going out a little bit further than I should, because I know a lot of these things are, well, I mean, you were on a mission and, and, and uh, they're sensitive topics. But there was another witness, and this was corroborated, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Well, there wasn't necessarily another witness directly to my sighting. Um, what had happened in a nutshell, and I won't go into all the details of, of the sighting and everything, but during the vetting process, uh, Anthony Lapp, who was the producer, and of course Lou Elizondo, uh, being with TTSA in the show, before you even make it to Lou, you have to jump through so many hoops. And they verify your DD-214s. They want to make sure that you weren't discharged on a psych eval. They compare, you know, if, like for me, I said, hey, I was in Jordan in 1995. 
they go back through your military records and look at your travel orders to make sure that, hey, yeah, you were in Jordan in 1995, right? So they, they cross-reference absolutely everything. And then uh, the, the basic general gist of the story was that I was guarding this unmarked crate in the middle of the desert that, uh, going fast-forwarding a lot, I, I had a personal reason to believe that that crate contained a nuclear device. And uh, apparently Lou had done a lot of investigation behind the scenes, and he had come to the exact same conclusion that there was, in fact, a recovered, and I'll use the term recovered very loosely, but there was a recovered Russian SS-24 inside that crate, which is capable of housing 10 separate nuclear warheads on this thing. Um, and he had come to that conclusion independently and, and verified my suspicions that I had had for you know, almost 24 years, that that was one of the reasons that the sighting that I had uh, was, was so interesting because this is a nuclear device separate from anything else. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere and uh, in this UAP, UFO phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, uh, was apparently able to uh, identify and, and track what I was guarding. And it really seems that, and first of all, thank you for your service. I, I should have said that already because not only, no, no, no. you know, you are, like you said, in the middle of nowhere, literally guarding something that could change the world as we know it. And you have these... These, the, the, this interesting sighting, this um, almost as if these objects are interested in energy itself and the component of, you know, the possibility that that energy could compromise who knows what it is of interest to them or I, I don't know. It's hard to theorize, but it's, I believe that and unidentified made a very good case for this, uh, that there is a component of the UAP phenomena that seems to be tracking nuclear devices. Yeah. Yeah. I, any, man, any idea that I come up with is, is just pure speculation. I'm, I'm not a physicist. I'm, I'm not an expert in quantum mechanics. Hell, I don't know if the experts in quantum mechanics are actually experts in it. But if you, if you accept the potential that the UAP phenomenon could be associated with uh, alternate realities or different dimensions and things like that, and then understand a little bit about the ideas in quantum entanglement and where a specific action or a specific particle uh, could be attached to another particle at massive distances away, uh, and, and an effect on one could have an effect on, on another. And if that holds true across dimensions and across boundaries, there could be the potential that nuclear explosions in our version of this reality have some sort of effect on another reality where these UAPs may be coming from. And it may be in their interest that, uh, that we're not detonating them anymore. Yeah. I think that's uh, a key. That's a good thing because there was a while there where it sure seemed like there was a lot of detonations taking place. And uh, I don't know if that's a good thing for anybody. Very interestingly, your story, can you take us to the actual sighting? I mean, just take us there. You're in the middle of, well, actually, just take us to before even. And uh, the maybe, maybe even the uh, thoughts that went through your mind on this particular mission. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I went through about an hour and a half long interview, almost two hours uh, for the, the show Unidentified. And they did a really good job of maintaining the story but there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. So I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to kind of go back into a lot of that detail. But at this point in time, I had been serving for 
several years. This was 1995. And you got to keep in mind that, you know, only, only four to five years prior to this was the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the Cold War had just basically ended. Um, and there was a lot, a lot of, not confusion, but there was a lot of, a lot of issues surrounding the fall of the Soviet Empire and, and the, the rise of different nation states and, and all sorts of things like that. So we were still on heightened alert. Uh, you know, our B-2 bombers, I mean, our B-1 bombers and everything were uh, B-52s and everything were still on active status because we were still in that mindset that, you know, we were 30 seconds away from global nuclear conflict. And that's how we trained. And I was very accustomed to getting phone calls that said, hey, get your bag packed. You got 24 hours to be on a no-notice deployment. I was with a unit that was that's what we did. We had uh, rapid, uh, rapid deployments. And for the most time, I was attached to JSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command. Now, I was not myself special forces. I was support for special forces. I provided uh, close-in defense for deployed units, uh, whether it be the, uh, the Green Berets or uh, the Rangers or uh, other entities in and out of of JSOC, uh, we would we would typically go where they went, but we wouldn't go as deep as they went, and we would kind of provide air base defense for them when they were further out, uh, wherever they were doing whatever it is that they do. Um, so, like normal, this began like like anything else. Uh, get a phone call that says, "Hey, you got uh, you got 12 hours to to be on board for this aircraft, and we're not telling you where you're going to go and, until you're airborne." Like, okay, so standard pack and grab my bag and head out. And uh, I think there was nine other people from my unit that got deployed with me. And we first fly to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, and we transfer over to another aircraft in Dover. And uh, the only thing that we were told at that point is we were going to be heading out to the Middle East. And they didn't tell us anything else until we were probably about three-quarters of the way across the pond. And uh, before we started uh, our descent, they told us that we were heading into Jordan. We're like, okay, that was weirdness number one because, you know, I had, I had by that time I had already been in Kuwait and I had been uh, in in uh, uh, Taif and Al Kars and the UAE and all over uh, Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm and was very familiar with the vast majority of the Middle East, having spent a lot of time over there, but never once, never once had I even thought about the country of Jordan, much less stepped foot in it. There was no reason to yet. So when we got there, uh, it was immediately different. Um, we were told primarily that this was an exercise, but I didn't buy it from, from the onset, and it was it was evident that this was not an exercise. This was, this was a real-world deployment because, you know, in exercises, we're wearing Miles gear, which is like the advanced military version of laser tag, and we used blanks and things like that. And I, I had a full combat load. We were armed to the teeth. Um, there was no blank adapters. There was no Miles gear. There was no white hat safety inspectors walking around. This was, this was the real deal. And... Uh, my team got there, and then one of the things that uh, that occurred right off the bat that I was like, "Whoa, this is this is not normal." My team got broken up. We were not working with the people that we traveled with, which is odd because when you're in a when you're in a deployment, man. I mean, these these are the guys from my unit, right? So I knew them. I knew what their behavior was like. I knew what their capabilities were. I you know I knew the guy that I wanted in my foxhole or, and he knew what my capabilities were because we work, fight, and train together. And the next thing I know, I don't see him anymore. And we're all split up. And I've got no idea who the guy is that I'm assigned on post with, which is one of the reasons I went on Reddit to see if I could track this dude down because I couldn't remember him. I can't remember his face, you know? And it was just weird to me that, that they would separate us like that. And I got on post, and uh, I ended up working uh, grave shift, which I think was, oh, basically, you know, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., 12-hour shifts. And uh, I don't know, for, for your listeners that have never been into the desert, it is, I mean, there's no clouds. It's just dark and stars. There, there's, no, 
There's nothing to obscure your, your sight. And you can see, man, you can see forever at night. And uh, I, I used to smoke back then. I was, I was probably a two-pack-a-day smoker. And, of course, you can't do that while you're on post. But well, I'll, I'll come back to that because when we, sorry, when we, uh, when, when I get on post, it was very different. It was, it was very obvious that this was not a normal situation because anytime that you get, you're, you're told to guard something that you have written rules, written regulations that you have in a little three ring binder, it's, sounds stupid but you know the rules of engagements are there and they tell you this is when you can use deadly force this is when you can't use deadly force this is your patrol zone don't go more than 30 meters away from this you know these are your uh, these are the badges that uh, authorized personnel are going to be carrying to identify who's supposed to come in and come out you know everything you're supposed to do and man in this circumstance there was none of that that did not exist and I can't remember if it was a captain or a major or whomever, but uh, but told me told me to uh, what my rules of engagements were. And uh, he basically said, "See this crate?" I was like, "Yeah, it's big ass wooden crate, giant crate." He goes, "All right, don't get near it. Don't let anybody else near it." I was like, "Okay, what do I do if people get near it?" He's like, "Don't let them near it." It's like, okay, I, I get that part, but what happens if somebody gets near it? He's like, shoot them. Oh, okay. Well, that's fairly serious. You know, we don't typically shoot people, especially in the middle of an exercise, just for getting near something. So that was, that was red flag number two. You know, immediate use of deadly force just for somebody getting near this giant-ass wooden crate with no nomenclature on it, right? And, uh, of course, when you're, I, I forget how old I was, I'm 24, 25 years old. You know, I think at the time I was probably an E3, pretty low rank at the time. And there's very little supervision out there. And it was just me and another another guy that I, like I said, I don't remember who he was. And uh, when you're told not to get near something, and you're told, you're not told why, you get curious about it, right? So, uh Hell, man, I got near it. I stood on it. I sat on it. I laid down on it. I pissed on it. Um, did just about everything that I was told not to do on this crate. And uh, going back to the point where I said I was about a two-pack-a-day smoker, of course, I wanted a cigarette every 15 minutes. And you can't smoke when you're on post because it just gives your position away. It's just the cherry on that cigarette, you know, a pair of night vision goggles and enemy hands, they can see you from like a mile and a half away. And I didn't particularly want to get shot in the face, so... I would literally walk away from my assigned post and climb up on a sand dune where I could still pretty much see what it was that I needed to see, but I wasn't anywhere close to my, my required responsibilities. And I'd sit up there on that sand dune and I'd, I'd smoke my cigarette. And then when I was done, I'd, I'd go back and, uh, and walk back over to where I'm supposed to be. And, uh, the guy that I was, that I was uh, posted with, he would go out there with me every now and then. And on the, the night that I saw what I saw, um, it was just, it was, like I said, it was a cloudless night. Perfectly beautiful outside. Uh, no. I climbed up on the sand dune and I kind of laid down and smoking a cigarette and he came over and he copped a squat beside me and uh, he's smoking as well. And I just got really bored and I took my night vision goggles out and I put my NVGs on and I turned them on, and I just started looking up at the sky. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever worn NVGs or if, if any of your listeners have ever looked through them, but as many thousands of stars as you can see without them, multiply that by another million when you're looking with them. And the cosmos just opens up. You can see everything, man. I mean, you're... You can see star constellations and patterns that you did not even know existed. Um, and I'm just, I'm fascinated. I'm just mesmerized by, by looking at everything. And then, uh, then I saw what I saw, and it, it freaked me the hell out. 
um, when you're looking through these these NVGs, you know these are old ones because this is back in the uh, you know the the early 90s, mid 90s. Uh, I think these were the old A and V PVS seven Bravos. And we're up to the 14s now, I think. Um, so seven generations later, uh, but you had about a 40 degree field of view. But when you're on the surface of the Earth looking up at the the universe, 40 degrees still spans a lot of space, right? And basically what I saw is I saw a pinpoint of light come from behind me. Because keep in mind, I'm I'm lying on my back, so I'm looking straight up. And I see a pinpoint of light that comes from my 6 o'clock position and then goes up to my top dead center and then makes a 90-degree angle and shoots off uh, to my left, to my, uh, my, my nine o'clock. And the first time I saw it, I was like, yep, yeah, time to change the batteries. The, uh, imaging tubes taking a dump. So they, uh, they ran on, I think it was CR-124 batteries or something like that. So I, I swapped out the batteries and I saw it again. I'm like, okay, not the battery. Imaging tube has dust in it. So I'm laying there and I take the, the imaging tube apart and I blow on it a couple times and slap it back together, look back up and see it again. And I keep seeing it over and over and over again. Same pattern, same thing. It just flies from my six o'clock top dead center, shoots off to the left. And this is horizon to horizon, man. And it's happening repeatedly in under two seconds. So I just take my nods off. I give them to the guy that's out there with me, and he's like, what? And I was like, just look. He's like, what am I looking for? I was like, just look. And he puts them on, and it was a couple, well, it was probably about a minute or so it goes by, and he doesn't do anything. And I'm like, shit, he's not seeing what I saw. And the next thing I said, oh, I saw his head track. I saw his head bound down and then swing off to the left, and I'm like, yep, he saw it. He took the night vision goggles off, he handed them back to me, he lit a cigarette, and then he walked off. He did not mention it, he did not say anything about it, he just handed them back to me and walked off. And he and I never said anything about it again. And of course, because I had walked off post to go get a cigarette, I couldn't tell anybody about it. I couldn't go into the command post tent and say, hey, Major, uh, you know, when I was 100 meters away from my assigned position, I saw something that uh, I shouldn't have seen because I was smoking where I wasn't supposed to be smoking and doing something that I was told not to do. So I couldn't say it to anybody. I couldn't tell anybody about it. And uh, all I know is that it's not an aircraft because there were no aircraft. You, you, can, you can see aircraft with night vision goggles. You can see the strobe lights. You can see the wingtips. You can see, hell, you can see into the passenger compartments because with the night vision goggles, that's what it does. It amplifies light. And even if we're talking 30,000, 40,000 feet up, you're going to see an aircraft with night vision goggles, especially when there's no clouds. Um, you're going to see satellites. And I did see satellites. Uh, in, in very slow, orbital, smooth paths and patterns that don't change direction. Um, this was not an aircraft. It was not a satellite. It was something that would be able to traverse from one horizon to the other horizon with a 90-degree turn in the middle, breaking the laws of the conservation of momentum in under two seconds. We're talking hypersonic velocities. Uh, we don't have that. We just simply don't have that. Uh, and when I, was, uh, when I was doing the interview for Unidentified, I recounted that exact same story. And it kind of creeped me out because Lou, Lou looked at me at the end of my, my testimony and he said, Jeremy, do you, do you think it was one craft repeating the pattern or do you think it was multiple craft following the same pattern? And that freaked me the hell out because until that point, I had never even considered the possibility that it was more than one. Um, and since that day on Unidentified, I've, I've maintained a friendship with Lou and I've developed a friendship with Sean and 
it had never been my intention to climb down the rabbit hole. I just wanted a personal validation. I wanted to find that other guy and have him tell me that he saw what I saw. And that was going to be the end of it. But holy crap, have I opened up a can of worms. And I am, I am now in a place that I never thought I was going to be. It's, it's an interesting place that you're in because, well, I think these things are meant to be in a way, at least it seems that way when you're dealing with UAP. And that sounds super crazy. Like half the people I know think I'm crazy. And it's because once you start talking about these things, it, uh, you're just categorized into a section of society that it's like, don't pay attention to them yet. Lou is somebody who I've met quality individual. His word is his bond and it's something you can take to the bank. And, um, you know, you're a desert storm veteran. You were involved with very intricate missions, possibly within inches. It sounds like maybe closer to an SS 24 nuclear warhead. And, you know, this is exactly, you guys are exactly the kind of people that we need to protect us from this sort of thing, because who knows what hands, if that is in fact what it is, or was, what hands that may have possibly gotten into. But um, the wording is very difficult in these scenarios, because once you mention UAP involved with anything, and it can be a top secret mission, it can be... Uh, U.S. war games, it can, systems, it can be anything you want to mention. You, you mention UFO, UAP, or something in the sky, and people just just close off. Have you noticed any of that uh, since, since you were on Unidentified? Uh, yeah, and, and to be honest with you, I, I'm guilty of it. Um, man, I saw something. I'm not going to say that I experienced anything, because... I didn't experience anything. I, I witnessed something, right? Um, but I grew up with that stigma. I, I matured in the military. And the way that the military treated people who mentioned UFOs, whether they be pilots or whether they be uh, missile techs or whomever, it happened to be that said, Hey, I saw a UFO. I mean, you know, you didn't see those guys again, or they went, they went to the hospital and, you know, when they came back, they, they didn't say shit about it. Um, so to this day, when somebody tells me that they've had an experience or they've seen something, my default personal position is super skeptical and what the hell is wrong with you, right? You know, if somebody tells me that they were driving down a country road at 11 o'clock at night and a black triangle hovered over top of them and their radio turned off and they lost two hours, and I'm like, what were you smoking? Were you drinking mushroom tea? And how many other lies have you told throughout the course of your, your life? I default immediately to the negative connotations of this is impossible and I don't believe you. Um, and I should not do that because I'm in that world now. You know, I, I've never been abducted. I've never had any CE5 types of experiences. But what I saw should tell me that anything else is possible, but I'm still defaulting to that what is wrong with you mentality? And I, there's nothing wrong with that. I do the same thing. And, and this is sort of what I do. Like it's a passion of mine. And yet still, you know, I would say 90% of the, well, I won't get into it, but yeah, the, the, the people throwing stuff uh, up in the air and, and, and claiming what they're seeing is something that it may not be. Um, or, or maybe misidentifying things, which is very common. Yeah. We're, we're, we're really taught. I mean, that's what I love about unidentified and unidentified aerial phenomena is we don't know what it is. And yeah. this is, this is, this is a matter of national security. And I believe that 
luckily for for that, luckily for that, the the entire UFO UAP culture is changing because military involvement and that human element to that is corroborating things that in the past there was literally just a just a brick wall you you couldn't oh, there's yeah. no communication have you noticed a lot of that changing yeah yeah there's there's a tremendous amount of a reduction in in the negative connotations is occurring the stigma is being reduced it's not gone I don't know if it'll ever be gone because I think at the same time that people are getting to be more comfortable with their abilities to, to come forward and talk about it. There are people who just simply want their 15 minutes and they don't care what bullshit, sorry, that they make up for this. Um, but they're, you know, we're still, we're, we're, we are always going to be faced with the guy wearing the wife beater, chain-smoking Newport, standing out behind the trailer in his mama's trailer court in southern Georgia saying he had an anal probe. That is going to be a personality type that we will forever contend with that reduces the credibility of everybody else. Um, and it's sad because there's no reason... There's no legitimate reason for people to do that. Um, I think if you spend enough time looking, you're going to see something regardless. You don't need to make it up. That's exactly right. I, I agree with you 100% that uh, without, w w it's not a matter of if, but when. And yeah. like that, I mean, your experience in the deserts of Jordan, that just kind of takes you there because that's exactly the kind of place that you would perfectly envision something like this being more obvious and readily visible than near a city with ambient light. I mean, some of this stuff could be taking place all the time and we have no idea. The interesting thing about the nuclear aspect is there's a ton of evidence, and I mean a ton. And this is a rabbit hole that I have not wanted to look down. I find other rabbit holes more appealing, if you want to call it that. But it's one that cannot be denied. The, the nuclear aspect, we have major countries all corroborating that uh, systems, weapon systems are being, being checked and analyzed and shut off and turned on and, and all kinds of stuff. There. There's, there's something to it. I, I don't know what it is. And thanks to Sean, who is probably one of the most stand-up people that I've, that I've ever met, uh, inside or outside of this, this arena, um, Sean and I have had, God, we've had hours and hours and hours of conversations uh, about this and about the phenomenon in general and just about things. But... I've started down the road of how we're talking right now about the, uh, the relationship between the nuclear aspect and the UAP phenomenon. Sean and I have, have really tilted the conversation to the consciousness aspect and the UAP phenomenon. And I'm beginning to wonder if the nuclear aspect is tied to the consciousness aspect just because of the capabilities of mass destruction that the nukes possess. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good, uh, that's a good analogy because that's more the appealing area that I like to go down is the consciousness aspect because it does appear that uh, there, there's, a lot of evidence for the consciousness aspect and what, what exactly they're trying to do or what they're trying to keep us from doing. It's, it's very difficult to tell. And, you know, when you have that, that oddball wrench of the guy getting probed, calling in constantly, it makes things difficult not to take away from, you know, there's mental illness, there's actual abduction yeah. cases and, and, 
And, you know, sure, it through the right prism of view, it might be the same elephant in the room, but it's nowhere near the same uh, thing that we're looking at, discussing or talking about. And it makes it very difficult because, you know, people want answers. They want disclosure. And my fear is uh, that already the little bit of disclosure we've had, you have people that are abandoning all more of those people that we were just discussing are showing up in the woodwork, but there's, uh, there's, there's a legitimacy to it too. Yeah. You we're not to the point where you can stop paying your mortgage and stop brushing your teeth and, and, you know, stop doing your daily routine. We are still in our definition, humans with a daily life, regardless of what we believe may be the answer to this. You can't just become the Fisher King and, and lose it. Um, so until we have a good understanding and a good handle on the relationship between, between consciousness and the UAP phenomenon, we can't separate ourselves from what we've been doing for the last 150,000 years. You know, we've, we've got to continue pushing forward as humanity in our definition of, of what humanity is. Now, at the same time, we may be in the process of changing that definition. We may be in the process of accepting that uh, humanity means a lot more than just us in flesh and bone. Uh, but we're not there yet. Yeah. Great stuff. And I want to not totally jump ship because it's such a great conversation, but I cannot get through the podcast and not uh, mention not only your awesome vehicle, because I'm a Land Rover fan and kind of a, a, a <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I want to also mention what you're doing with it, what you're bolting to it and what your plans are for it. Can we discuss that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you bringing that up then. Um, so I was on uh, another podcast uh, with Andrew Hall. It was called Dead Hand Radio. And we were discussing uh, a lot of different things. And I believe Andrew had asked me what I would be doing uh, if, if I could control the narrative on the UAP phenomenon or something to that aspect. And I, I basically told him, I was like, man, we need standardization of information collection. You know, everybody has a cell phone, and it's a Nokia or a Huawei or an iPhone or an Android or whatever it is, and they all have different camera systems and different processors and, uh, you know, horizontal and vertical, and it, it's just different, and they're not designed to collect the evidence that we're attempting to collect with them, Right. So, yes, all UFO pictures are looking like a giant cheese puff a mile away, and, and they just look like butt. So what I would have done is I would have created some sort of equipment that would have been able to be accessible by everyone that is built in a standardized method with, with a specific, specific purpose to it that would eliminate variables in data collection. And he told me at that moment, he was like, you know, there's, there's an organization out there called Skyhub, and it's literally skyhub.org, O-R-G, for the people that are listening that want to check it out. Um, and what they've done is there's a guy by the name of Steve McDaniels who has built a sensor stack. And we're talking everything from multispectral imaging to weather telemetry to ADSB information to uh, GPSs and accelerometers and RF measurement and uh, electrostatic measurement. It's, 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 a, it's a box. It's like a suitcase with every sensor that you can possibly think of it in there, plus video uh, recording with, with PTZ type of cameras and 360-degree fisheye cameras. And you can't deploy it without capturing something. And the idea behind this is that it will record and monitor everything within the field of view or within the sensor range of this box. And it will then feed that data stream into an AI. 
and the AI will go back through this data, and it will be like, nope, that's a bird, and I can tell you that not only it's a bird, it's a barn swallow, and it's a, you know, or a, or a South African swallow carrying coconuts. And here's the airspeed velocity. Or that was not only an aircraft, but based on the uh, position, the altitude, and the ADSB, that was this aircraft with this call sign heading from here to here, and it will identify all the knowns and filter them out and only leave you with the unknowns and then be able to provide those unknowns to the world at large, to academia, to research, to industry, unfettered access for everybody to look at and say, this is unedited, this is unidentified, please help us research these unknown events. Um, so that's Skyhub. And I became enthralled with the idea of Skyhub because witnesses are wrong probably 90% of the time. Um, I was in law enforcement for 12 years. And if you interview a witness, you can take about 10% of their testimony as being accurate. But it's up to you as the investigator to identify which 10% of their 100% of testimony is actually accurate. Um, with Skyhub, you don't have to do that. Because if I see something and I've got Skyhub that is validating and backing it up, you know, I'm going to be able to say it hovered over my house for eight and a half minutes and it glowed orange and I could see windows on it. And Skyhub is going to say, it was at an altitude of 150 feet. It was completely motionless. It didn't move more than eight pixels left or right. And th I mean, it can get down to the nitty gritty on this and validate or prove that I was full of crap. And that's why I love the idea of Skyhub because it doesn't care about your mental state or your feelings. It simply reports and records data. Um, so when I learned about Skyhub, man, I, I wanted to take it a step further, and I wanted to make this mobile. And uh, and I like like you were saying, I've got an old Land Rover. It's a Land Rover Discovery II, uh, and and very very capable overlanding vehicle. This thing can go just about anywhere except float. Um, and living out here in, in Nevada, uh, in Las Vegas, I have access. 150 miles to the back gate of Area 51. Tonempah is, is 80, 90 miles away from me. Uh, Papoose Lake is is not accessible, but I know where it is. I've got Creech Air Force Base. I've got Indian Springs, where most of the drones around the world are, are launched and flown from. Uh, I've got Death Valley, California, uh, right down the road. And I wanted a Skyhub unit on the top of my Land Rover so I could go to all these places and just sit and and do these recording sessions and see what I can pick up. And uh, it's expensive. It's not cheap. Uh, Skyhub does not sell the units. They give you an itemized listing of everything that people need to be able to build their own. Uh, they don't make any money off of, uh, off of anybody building them, uh, so they don't sell the components, but they have a shopping list for it. And what I need to do to my vehicle plus what I need to acquire to build the Skyhub uh, and the specialized components and the inverters and things like that that I need to be able to run it for my vehicle. I'm looking at uh, around $3,000 uh, worth of an investment to make this happen. And uh, so I started a GoFundMe page. And uh, you can find it on my Twitter. I don't know what the, uh, the URL is for it, but I started a GoFundMe page uh, a few few days ago, and I think we're close to $400 in donations right now, which will, which will get one of the primary components, uh, which is the, uh, the processor for this thing. And my, my intent is to get this and go everywhere I can with the Skyhub unit, including out to, uh, to Skinwalker. I, I think that the Skyhub technology is the greatest idea ever. Uh, bolted onto the greatest vehicle ever. And uh, I think it's a genius idea. Uh, Steve, the creator, if you guys haven't checked out Skyhub, check it out. It's it's amazing. 
and I can't think of a better way of using it than bolting it to a discovery. Um, the, the amazing thing is that, uh, and we have to get the GoFundMe. We'll, we'll I'll have to list it or, um, look it up and get it to our listeners before we're off. But, um, it, it, if I'm not mistaken, it can track it. it the technology behind it is pr- pretty magic. I mean, it can track, uh, uh, the, the amount of tracking involved that it can do is, is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a sensor tech, uh, type of guy. I don't, I'm not an electronics guy. I'm, hell, I'm not even a computer guy, but from my understanding, the sensitivity on this thing, it, the cameras, uh, the base camera, like the low end camera that's being put on this thing is a 12 megapixel platform camera and it's a fisheye. So it has a huge field of view. And then the general idea is to have a massive PTZ pan tilt zoom camera on a motorized gimbal so that when the fisheye picks up something anomalous and the AI says, yeah, it's not a bird. It's not a, it's not a moth. It's not a 747. We don't know what this is based on angle and attitude and speed and elevation of flight path and, and behavior, then the fisheye triggers the PTZ. The PTZ zooms in on this thing, and while everything is being measured in multispectral imaging and, and RF and, and uh, even, even uh, uh, like geophone type of uh, uh, vibrations, uh, we're getting visual backup of everything else that every other sensor is recording. So nothing is separate. Everything is being recorded at the same time and date stamp. So you're able to go back and look at the RF based on uh, the exact moment in time that the Skyhub detected the unit and, and see what the environmental changes are, if there are environmental changes. So nothing is left out. Everything is, everything is being recorded on this absolutely amazing technology the fact that it even exists is just mind-blowing to me and uh those areas that you're talking about hitting with the four by four are exactly the kinds of areas where this stuff is not only taking place but it's taking place often and i see that you being out there with that is going to have pretty unique um things or traits uh to, to that sky hub particular sky hub unit how close you said how 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 much do does it take to get the full unit? Did you say it's about three thousand? Is that about right? No, no, it's it's probably about a thousand to eleven hundred dollars for the full unit. But because I'm doing things differently with making it mobile, I have to increase the storage capacity on this thing. I have to uh, acquire some really not heavy-duty inverters, but good sine wave-generating inverters to make sure that the electricity that's coming off of my alternator is not affecting uh, the uh, the systems on the Skyhub. And I've got to increase the ability for the vehicle to be grounded. I'm actually taking a, I'm actually drilling into my frame and uh, making uh, copper line with, uh, I think, four-foot-long grounding rods so when i park in an area i pull this line off and i slam the the rods into the ground and ground out the vehicle just to make sure that i'm eliminating any type of interference um and then uh, I, I have to upgrade a couple things on uh, on my suspension to get into some of the places that i need to go so my cost on this is around the three thousand dollar mark if somebody wanted to build a sky hub and mount it on the roof of their house uh, or their building, or out in the middle of a field somewhere, they'd probably be into this uh, right around a grand. Yeah. It's the coolest technology ever, and I can't wait to see it on the top of your rig. I think it would look so cool. Um, definitely, listeners, if you have a chance, go to the GoFundMe, which I will I will list and mention on the end of the podcast, and let's make this happen. Where can people keep up with you, uh, stay up to date with what's going on, and is is there any possibility that uh, there's more corroboration taking place with Lou and Sean and the the bunch? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. 
Uh, I've created a Twitter account specifically for the the UFO UAP stuff. I had a personal Twitter, but I try to keep everything separate, um, just in case it becomes too weird and I need to pull the plug on it and uh, and just continue to live my life. So uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Jeremy J E R E M Y underscore uh, unidenti U N I D E N T I one, the number one. Uh, so that's my Twitter handle, and uh, you can you can find me on there. Shoot me a direct message. I don't do anything on Instagram. Um, I do play around on Reddit occasionally. Uh, my handle on Reddit is Vet Searcher, uh, and that was the handle that I used when I originally went to Reddit to see if the uh, uh, the detective type people there could help me track down the other guy that was uh, that was with me on the deployment and i've just used that same handle ever since that that day but that's the handle that ends up getting me on the uh, the unidentified show um as far as corroboration with with lou and sean um i don't know that's that's up to them i talk to uh sean probably twice a week i speak with lou probably twice a month um I don't ask to become involved in anything that's TTSA related. Uh, Lou knows where I am if, if I'm needed. As far as Sean and I are concerned, Sean is, Sean is, is basically, I guess, I guess you could call him now like my mental sensei in all of this. Um, there is there is a certain consciousness aspect and a certain certain rabbit hole that uh, that you can go down with the CE five type of uh, type of things and everything from uh, meditation and mind and body and out of body experiences and astral projection and remote viewing and I don't know where my belief structure lies with that but. I'm opening my mind to the possibility of it all being true in varying degrees and just running some personal experiments. Um, I would not have thought that any of it was real until if, if you ever go to the CIA library online and just do some keyword searches and, and look for these things like astral projection and remote viewing and you actually see the declassified documents straight out of the CIA reading room where they're talking about this and they're like, they're giving directions on how to do it in old documents on how they used to train special forces operatives in, 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 in cement block rooms back in the 60s and 70s. I'm like, man, our government was doing this this is the instruction manual on how they were doing this. I now have access to the same thing that people that were apparently spying on Castro were using to spy on Castro, and I've got it sitting in my hand. I mean, right here. There it is. I don't, it's not focusing. Yeah. If you can see the document oh, yeah. at all on the camera, this is... This yeah. is all, all I'll read it if it's not focusing. It's approved for release, for release back in 2003, Department of the Army, U.S. Army Operational Group, U.S. Army Intelligence and Security Command, and the subject is analysis and assessment of gateway process. And the gateway process comes from the Monroe Institute that was teaching people how to do remote viewing. And it is... I've got 20, 27, 28 pages of documentation from the CIA uh, library on remote viewing just right there. And that, that stuff blows my mind. I never thought it was real. But, but now I'm, I'm like, hey, okay, let's give it a shot. Let's see if this works. It's, it's totally real. And when you, when you realize that it's re if, if it's real to them, and I, by them, I mean intelligence, then it should be real to us. And yeah. uh, when they perfectly explain these things in declassified CIA documents, it becomes readily available. And, you know, it's a small world. Uh, have you spoken with Angela Thompson Smith at all in Boulder City? No. You got to no, talk I've, with her. I, I have, 
I have a very close circle, and believe it or not, I rely on Sean and Lou to be my filters for the world mm-hmm. because I do not want to get duped by Joe Dirt and and his his wife beat her out behind his trailer purporting himself to be somebody he's not. There are a lot of people, man, there are a lot of people, um, and some of them have a lot of followers on Twitter who are not who they say they are, and they did not go through what they say they did. And I use Lou and Sean and their experience in all this to become my filter and tell me, Straight up, you know, hey, this guy is trustworthy. This guy's solid. Yes, I vetted him. I don't know shit about this guy. Stay the heck away from him. Yeah. You know, so if 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 I don't run it through Sean or Lou, I don't talk to him. Yep. And it's it's kind of getting back to that gateway. Uh, she has it. Well, she she is a remote view instructor who used to do the Nevada Remote Viewing Group, who was hired by uh, Bob Bigelow to remote view uh, specific areas in Utah. And it's, it's interesting when, uh, when, and if you make a trip to Utah, it may be fun maybe afterwards just, or I, you don't want to what they call preload, you know, go with, go with, uh, go, go with something in mind. So it may be best to put that on the back burner, like you said, but yeah, the remote viewing stuff is very real and when you talk to people that were involved with the instruction or the actual gateway project, the Monroe Institute and, and kind of that invisible college, you realize like it's real from pretty much every angle you look at it. It's a solid, yeah. solid well, stuff. The one thing that convinced me, and it's, it's so, I don't know, so, so weird. The one person that I've spoken to outside of, of the approved quote-unquote circle, um, I spoke to a guy probably about four weeks ago. About a month, yeah, about a month ago. And he was talking to me about the remote viewing, and this guy was in the military, claimed to have been a remote viewer for the U.S. government, um, did not give me his identity. He contacted me because of a couple tweets that I had put out. And uh, he, he called me through a burner number on Signal, and I have no idea who he was, uh, is. But he creeped me the hell out, man, because he told me, he told me he could tell me what was sitting in the middle of my living room. And as soon as he used the words, in the middle of your living room, the hair on my arms stood up because I have a really big living room. And everything that I have is pushed up against the walls because I suck at interior decoration. So I don't have things in the middle of my living room at all. But I did that week because I was working on my ceiling fan and I left my ladder sitting in the middle of my damn living room. And he told me I had a ladder sitting in the middle of my living room. And I'm like, all right, I'm listening. And, and we had a, had a probably about a 20, 30-minute long conversation. And it was not on instructions. It was not on abilities. It was just simply on him telling me that it's real. I'm like, okay, it's real. I get it. It's such a fascinating subject and there's so many aspects to it. You're, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast, Jeremy, and I hope we talk again real soon. I'm happy that you're a fellow uh, Nevadan because there's so much neat stuff to see down here. And I think your project, oh, yeah. your project is spot on, man. Um, I, will, I will definitely tell our listeners where your GoFundMe is, where Skyhub is, and I can't wait to hear from you and your adventures. Ryan, it has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. And, and uh, you know, once uh, once we get this whole mask thing taken care of, uh, you and I need to sit down and, and have a beer. Sounds good. All right. Thank you for your service again and all the best, my man. Absolutely, Ryan. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. What an amazing guy. What an amazing mission. What amazing experiences. And, of course, just a classic quality individual and veteran can't thank him enough for his time 
and, uh, you know, for all the military operations he did. And I, I think what he witnessed, a lot of people uh, can really thank him for that because it's opening the eyes of a lot of individuals when military members and veterans come forward with this information because these are the people we trust with our safety. And uh, he is just a quality guy. I, I really want this Sky Th- Hub technology to be mounted to his awesome overland vehicle and i think you guys should definitely follow him on twitter let me give you that it is jeremy j-e-r-e-m-y unidenti one which is u-n-i-d-e-n-t-i one jeremy unidenti one and uh jump on twitter reach out and uh, shoot him a donation to his GoFundMe because this Skyhub thing is uh, what cooler way than to have it mounted on a mobile 4x4 tracker like he is discussing and uh, I'm sure we'll make reality. Let's let's definitely help him out with that. Also go to HeroParanormal.com, shoot us a buck or two, and it is your gateway to uh, all the podcasts and the archives. Thanks for all you guys do, and thanks for listening. Have a great one. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Time machine, third eye feeling like an evisine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evisine. Blast off.